Hi, everyone. Welcome back to session three of the philosophy of data science series. Uh, today, we're starting off what I expect to be about a three-part conversation covering one of my favorite uh, publication series. And in particular, in this case, it's on applying prognostic and predictive models to the medical domain. But I think that the value of the series isn't that it's only specific to medical domains, or it's valuable for anyone who is working in data science and looking to apply valid predictive models in any setting. Um, I think what really highlights the series is that they bring you through the thought process of all the steps that are required to validate a predictive model. And it's written in very plain, tractable uh, language so that essentially, even if you're a beginning data scientist or an experienced data scientist, there's something in it for each of you. I first read this series back when I was starting my doctorate. And in rereading and reviewing this, uh, the publications uh, in preparation for this series, I found new things that I liked and enjoyed again. So I think that this shows that it is, it is a very useful series. Um, our speaker today is Carl Moons, um, but other uh, presenters on this include uh, Patrick Royston and uh, Doug Altman. I think I'm probably forgetting some people, but... Um, you can follow me for Carl Yep. Yes. Um, and... I, th I just have to say, you know, obviously Doug Altman uh, was one of the, who I think is probably, was one of the great scientific thinkers in statistics. Um, obviously statistics can span a lot of methodological work, a lot of mathematical work. I think Doug Altman really stands out as one of the great scientists in statistics. And uh, obviously, um, yes, yeah, he, he, he was a, he a great contributor to our field um, in many ways. And um also, I, I personally, I find him to be one of the best statistical writers, um, although I'm also biased because I tend to yes. like the topics that he writes on. But uh, Carl, you're here today, um, and we're just going to go through the series. The links to each Thank of you. the publications is a four-part uh, British Medical Journal series, and um, we'll just go through and have a, have a conversation about it. So, uh, Carl, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, thanks, Glenn, uh, for the kind words, and let me first kick off by saying that I I'm so happy that I had the privilege uh, to work with uh, a person who became my personal friend also for, for, for a long time, Doc Altman, late Doc Altman, which I think indeed was one of the best writers in statistics, not only because he is writing on the topics that you and I apparently are very much uh, familiar and uh, acquainted to and also very much alike, but also on many other topics that is not so much close to my own expertise. He was such a clear thinker, but also a clear communicator and clear writer, both verbally and by the written word. Yeah, it's, 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 it's wonderful that a young person like me, still young, could have, has had the privilege to work for 15 years with Doc Altman so closely. Yeah. But indeed, uh, now thanks for this uh, interview. And uh, interesting, I was very pleased uh, that... 11 years after date, this series still is uh, so prevalent and new um, and that you uh, would like to ask me a few things about how that series come uh, to the end, uh, which you have seen in BMJ 2009. Uh, but my name is Carol Mons. I'm a uh, clinical epidemiologist uh, at, working at the Julia Center of the University Medical Center in Utrecht. I'm also have, uh, affiliated with uh, Vanderbilt University in Nashville, uh, the previous head of the Department of Biostatistics is Frank Harrell, personal friend of me as well, and also affiliated to actually the CSM at Oxford University, where Doc Altman was the head of. 
Yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of the uh, the output of CSM, obviously, although I am, of course, yeah. extremely biased. Uh, yeah. Um, and um, I don't say actually, Frank Harrell, when you mentioned him, he's someone who I was actually hoping to bring on as a fourth person. So I might pester you after this because uh, yeah, you can. Yeah. So strong opinions well. on dichotomizing yeah. continuous variables. For yeah. example, yeah. Cool. So uh, to begin, let's let's talk about this. Uh, the British Medical Journal and a project called BMJ series. Um, it's a four-part paper series. I believe it was published around two thousand nine-ish. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's nice, I wish more journals did this, where it's a cohesive series. Each of the journal, each of the papers is probably about, I'd say, about six pages in total length, and um, it covers different parts of essentially the story of validating predictive models. Um, this one yep. focused on examples uh, in the medical domain, but the fact is um, these are applicable regardless of what I domain do. you're working in. Um, although, yeah, although I do have to say, of course, uh, all the authors that were involved are uh, medical scientists, so to say, yeah, biomedical scientists, all in the medical domain. But I agree with you. I think we also kick off at this four papers, uh, by the way, at that series. One is what is actually prediction, prognostication uh, in medicine, but we kick off by in a more general concept. And the second one is how do you, what do you need? Eh? What do you, how do you develop a prediction model? Then the third one is how to validate, to test the, the accuracy, the, the value of the prediction model. And the final one, which is an interesting one and quite new, but very prevalent also in the discussion with AI-based prediction algorithms, which is now hot, of course, is um, to quantify whether they truly lead to improved effectiveness of our medical care system or patient outcomes, which means that you quantify the impact of the use of these models which is different, very different from the preceding three models, which is more about the predictive accuracy of these models. And that's something else than the effectiveness of the models. But I agree in paper one, we, uh, we, we explain what prediction is and, uh, and prediction is simply foretelling, foreseeing something we do not know yet. And we constantly do that in our life. Actually, even right now on the spot, we are predicting in our head without realizing it, how well will this interview go? Or how, what will be the next question? What will be my next answer? We constantly predict if we cross the street, we are predicting, am I getting there safely by observing the traffic around me? Weather forecasting, COVID pandemic forecasting, whatever, uh, economic forecasting, it's constantly prediction, something we don't know. And indeed, in medicine, there are two ways of prediction, particularly one is the easy one is prognosis, prognostication, there you're predicting an outcome in the future somewhere. And that future can be in minutes, for example, a post-operative or intraoperative complications. It can be hours, post-operative complication or IC, intensive care complication. It can be days hospital days, it can be weeks, months, years, or even lifetime prediction. So that's prognostication, predicting in time, but prognosis, predict, uh, that's prediction in time, it's prognosis, but it's also in diagnosis. Uh, that series covers particularly prognosis, but also diagnostic prediction models are very prevalent in, uh, in medicine. And therefore, uh, and there we actually predicting the result of a kind of gold standard test, a reference standard that we haven't done yet. So with simple, parameters like symptoms, signs, and easy to obtain test results, you're predicting a more usually costly, invasive, or burdening test result. And that's also prediction because you haven't done that test 
yet. So in medicine, prediction is two things. Prognosis in time prediction. That's the series in the BMJ. But almost everything we say in that series also applies to diagnostic prediction models in medicine. I just want to emphasize that in this interview. Yeah, that is something, uh, that is one of the things that I think uh, pops out where essentially uh, two things I've noticed very much that uh, really sort of distinguishes or uh, clarify that the uh, context is is in medical domain. Uh, one is, of course, like the focus on things like, uh, uh, I wouldn't say hazard models in particular, but, you know, that's sort of the survival curves issues. Um, yep. And then also classification, um, whereas I think yeah. that, for classification example... Classification is usually what diagnostic refers to, yeah. yeah. So the big difference between diagnostic prediction and prognostic prediction is time. With diagnostic prediction, you're predicting something that is already there yet, a diagnosis, but you haven't just measured it. And with prognosis, you're pro predicting in time, something in time. And when that time interval is late, long, we usually use their time to event models, uh, survival models, you just mentioned it. And if that time period is short, then we tend to use in medicine at least logistic models. It doesn't become a classification model then, as we diagnose, but it rather becomes uh, predicting the probability that an event will occur in the next hours in the next weeks in the next month personally if if i'm going to predict beyond six months i usually go to time to event models but there's no golden rule in that uh, yeah yeah i i think uh so i guess where's uh one of the i maybe we should j just do this because this is very applicable to everyone one of the main things i think that you're addressing this is the fact that people aren't using a lot of uh, predictive models even though of course the technology is there um the data is I'll say there in quotes, because of course that's one of the issues that we want to uh, discuss and sort of try to parse through. Um, but the fact is that the uptake of a lot of these predictive statistical data science models is not where it could be as it, if, you know, compared to where, if these models were more used because they're better scientifically validated. Um, so I yeah. guess, so uh, maybe, maybe we should talk about that, about the sort of the gap between the hype in the, uh, in the use of these models and whether or not they actually get used and whether or not they're useful. Yeah, that's particularly the hype, the, the big gap between the, the number of models that is being developed. And then there is a gap of the number of models that's being validated after that development. And then there's another even bigger gap, the number of models that is validated but still not used into clinical practice or into daily practice. So, yeah, that's two big gaps indeed. Um, yeah, as you have seen in that series, particularly in paper one, we focus on what are the essentials of the data set and the, the, the design or the type of study that led to those data sets. What are the essentials that you uh, need to address to make sure that the data set you use is valid for the predictive purpose uh, that you have with your model? And the second paper, again, is then more about the aspects on how to develop that model uh, with variable selection and dichotomization. You just mentioned that. And the third paper is about validation of these developed models. And the fourth paper is about the, actually the use of these models and their effects in daily practice. That's how these, this series is uh, built up. And unfortunately, it was already at the time that we wrote that series, we saw that the number of developed prediction models in medicine is huge. It was already huge at the moment we wrote that series. Now that was in the mid, early, I think we started, Doc Altman and I met in Australia, I remember it very well, and we 
concipiated there the uh, this this series and i think it was 2006 or something it took us three years to write the whole series because we submitted the whole series at once to bmj um and all, at that time we were simply struck by the fact my goodness everyone self-respecting statistician or epidemiologist developing a model and now suddenly that well, perhaps even self every self-respecting biomedical research develops a model because we can and it's pressing buttons in, in, in statistical programs it's you uh, when windows came in it was pressing buttons you didn't even have to write any scripts anymore you just do it and it gets out if you have a data set you get a model always by definition so the number of developed models was so huge and then we were struck by the fact that only a few were actually validating that model in another data set from which it was developed and let alone that someone even continued to show the effectiveness of using such a model in practice and does it really lead to better patient care and better patient outcomes yeah and um sometimes it it, 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 it shocks me even more than it did in the 2006 uh, is that now with the data science where actually everyone is getting to going to develop a model because they can have access to data and um, the number of development models is now even uh, it's almost overwhelming it's ridiculous uh, as you might know is that uh, in the bmj again in the bmj by the way for the very first time in the history of bmj uh, as i've heard is doing a living review and every six weeks with a large international team uh, we are uh, conducting a political appraisal of all existing models predicting covid related consequences so we there are three types of covid related prediction models one predicting who gets covid two the ones who have symptoms, uh, do they really have COVID? Can you predict that early without having to do the invasive testing? And three is, if you have COVID, what's your prognosis? Three types of prediction models. And now how many months are we there? Nine only. And already in the first few months, we had so many papers to go through, 50,000 papers to go through. And already there are more than 160 or 70 models to date predicting some COVID-related endpoints sometimes of data sets of only 20 people because we can so that now we're living in 2020 having a situation and still we have so much development and i think if i correct i misphrase my my own research right now but i think only one was validated of all these 170 covid related models yeah um actually so, i just oh go on now, so what has changed eh, over the years? I think it only has getting worse. And that I'm glad actually you pick out that series right now because it's now perhaps even more important than it was in 2009 uh, still. Yeah, I was actually going to say the, on, the only good thing about everyone uh, creating their own models is that we're so busy creating our own models that we don't have time to use other people's bad models. I would say that that's our main <laughs> saving grace. Um, but it's under the premise that your own model is good. Oh, no, no, not, not that premise. At the very least, that you aren't going to use two bad models as opposed to just one. So at least ah, you'll yeah, have yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that you'll, at least yeah. you'll be on internal data. Um, yeah, but that's a good point. I mean, we are not developing, uh, because if we do, we don't need to publish. We're not developing prediction models for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And perhaps uh, if you do, if you only you develop a prediction model from the data, in my case, from the UMCU track, and I'm developing a prediction model on my UMCU Utrecht patients, and I'm uh, trying to apply it only in my UMC Utrecht patients, 
that, that's okay, but that, I don't need to publish that model then. Because if you do, it's in the open. And why do we do that? Is to have other people learn from that data, from that experience, actually, not only learn it, but to use that model also and their patients without having to redevelop it. Of course, that's the idea behind science and uh, uh, publishing experiences and data so that not everyone needs to repeat everything for themselves. That's actually, uh, that's an interesting bit because I, I'll be honest, I always thought that uh, sort of medical statistics when it comes to predictive models, that essentially what the, it was instruction manual for how to create your own. So I, I took the opposite uh, sort of uh, tact where there was the idea that um, and maybe it's because I work a little bit more on the personalized modeling. So essentially developing personalized time series. So essentially you are just, you describe the process and then you show that the process generally worked on this. But that's interesting because um, I think there, there is this. you do it also that others are going to use that. Uh, they'll use the process, they won't model. use my model. Yeah, yeah, okay. But, yeah. yeah, but if that is the case, uh, now take the framing of risk model. Uh, I understand what you're saying, uh, and I, I like that idea as well. But that take the framing of risk model. It's uh, it, it, the way it's used, it's used in many countries uh, to, uh, to, to use for prediction cardiovascular outcomes in five or 10 years and uh, to make a decision on whether we should put them on cholesterol lowering or blood pressure lowering drugs or lifestyle changes, preventions. Um, the idea is that that framing a risk model is useful not only in the little village of Framingham at the time, it still exists, quote unquote little, but also that, that in Boston it's used or in New York or even beyond the US. And you might validate paper three, that model in your own setting without repeating that whole process, but rather see how well it predicts. If it predicts good enough, use it. If it does not predict, you might tailor it starting from that model and improve it a little bit here. That's called updating, which is also described by the way the methods for doing that in paper three. It's easier to tailor that model than to repeat that whole process because repeating that whole process also desires or requires that you have, again, a large data set with the same structure, well-organized, well well-developed, that data set, I mean, no biases. So if we constantly need to repeat the whole process that you did with your model, oh my goodness, how much data do we need then? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And especially uh, uh, other ones that you mentioned, for example, SAPS, SAPS, uh, the SAP score, the Apache score, yeah, things like that. Obviously, many, those yeah. are meant to, you take them, you plop them uh, down yeah. on this new clinical setting, and it's expected to just work as is. Well, yeah, but, uh, yeah, with one more subtlety, Glenn, uh, test them, mm-hmm. see whether they are accurate enough. They don't need to be as accurate as in the original development set. That's also a mistake uh, that what is often seen. I mean, every developed model is usually working a little bit less in another data set. It's logic because it's not fit on that data set. Yeah. Uh, well, developing a model means it's optimally fit, maximum likelihood, but it also applies to data science approaches even more with machine learning approaches, they are perfectly fit on that data set, but they always, almost always behave worse in another data set, but it doesn't matter. If it's good enough for your, if it's fit for your purpose, it's okay. You don't need to compare it with the development set. I think that's a misunderstanding what people too much do because, oh, it's worse than in the development set, so it's less useful. No, it's your decision uh, if, if it predicts well enough. 
It's the consequences about the prediction. If you are happy with those predictions, if it's accurate, it's accurate, apply it. So I'm not saying that every, like the, the, all the models that you mentioned, uh, when it's developed, apply to your setting. No, what I prefer is, but you need much less data than for development is check how accurate the model behaves in your data set. If it's good enough, apply it. If it's not good enough, see whether you can easily update it with intercept adjustments or based on hazard adjustments or perhaps even coefficients and predictor weight adjustments. And therefore you, you can very easily improve your models and already get there where you want to be with that model. So you don't need to redevelop it, only you need a little data to update it to your local circumstance, your local setting. And that's, I think, how the prediction perp, uh, scientific prediction model process should be. Large data set, people develop it with, with good studies and with good, uh, with good knowledge of the data, the, of the studies that led to that data. But you need a larger, bigger data set to develop it. You need a much smaller data set to validate it. Tailor it to that circumstance if you're not happy enough. And then ideally, ideally, you check whether the use of that model truly leads to changes in the behavior or the decision-making of physicians, healthcare providers, patients to see whether they truly have better patient outcomes. That's, I think, the ideal process that we should do. Yeah. Sorry for the long answer. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Long answers are why we're here. Uh, that's why we set up uh, the time for this. Yeah. Um, two things real quick before people get a little bit confused, because there is, I think, a little bit yeah. of a different terminology where I actually tend to use and prefer the medical statistics terminology, where uh, validation is usually referred is referring to an external data set, um, usually as external as possible, maybe even a different clinic right. at a different time. Um, in machine learning, of course, there's the training, there's the validation, the test set. So the uh, validation set that medical statisticians are usually referring to is something much more akin to the test set that machine learning scientists the data are science. Exactly. Yeah, good yeah. point. That answers, yes. And what you, uh, we also use the term internal validation. We, we used to use the term, actually in the series we do, we, we refrain from that because we need, we wrote a few more series after that, uh, which is called, uh, uh, for example, the tripod statement, the reporting of prediction models and also ProBust. And therefore we indeed uh, rather do not use the word internal and external anymore. Validation means as you said, testing in the machine learning world, you, somebody developed a model or including yourself and you used a totally different data set to test the predictive accuracy of the model. And with internal validation, we mean, um, and that's the same, I think, uh, the same wording as in the machine learning world. We simply mean that in the same data set as you develop the model, you use statistical approaches, testing, retesting, like bootstrapping, or uh, some people use split sample. We don't like that. But uh, like statistical approaches to do that resampling approaches, let's use that word, resampling approaches, no new data, only your own data to optimize, uh, to see whether the model is too optimistic or overfitted. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I would also say that I preferred the earlier way of doing it, maybe because I'm getting older, but um, I like the idea of essentially putting qualifiers in front of the terms that you're using. Because also, in addition to internal external validation, there's also, for example, temporal validation, um, yeah, where yeah. essentially you could be within your same site, but you're moving down yeah. in time. And yeah. that's, uh, yeah. And I just like the idea that essentially you can add qualifiers and it just reminds you to think about explicitly what your statements are. Very good point. Yeah. 
I agree cool. with it. Yeah. Um, and you even have, uh, we, I think also in, the, in that series we use that term as domain validation, eh, for example, or setting validation. Uh, I'm involved a lot in that is, for example, um, a prediction model that predicts, uh, uh, let's say, the presence of pulmonary embolism that was developed in acute medicine in a hospital. We simply evaluated that in a primary care setting. It's a totally different setting, a totally different, almost domain, but you can do it. It's simply validate. That's called domain validation uh, because it's a totally other yeah, target population than from which it was developed. And we also developed models in adults and we validated that, tested them in, in children below 18 years old, even though they were not included in the development set. That's also a kind of validation, but adding an additional word before the word validation, that helps very much. I like that uh, also. Temple validation, domain validation, uh, setting validation yeah, and all forms of uh, external validation in effect. Yeah. I think it's also just good to generally remind people that these terms are concepts and that, yeah. you know, when yeah. you, when you have essentially, you know, these terms, while it's very useful to be using the same terminology, these are not, you know, some ossified religious text that must like never deviate. You can always be um, adding to them, thinking about them more. Um, and that brings another bit up about uh, uh, this paper series that I actually found it very good. When I first went through this uh, as a doctoral student, what I did is I took it and essentially I created checklists from it where it's just different ideas, different ways that you can validate, ways that you can check. And it isn't just for saying, oh, I'd be, I would be able to do these if I had more data. You know, you can take these and apply them to your internal data set to start pre-testing some of these ideas. You know, you can see um, if you have a really big, data set, and I tend to have those, um, that like, well, if I temporarily divide my training data, do, and I train the model in one uh, time period and predict it on another, do things start falling apart soon? And I think that's a very good way to start warning, like, are there some like inductive steps and inductive problems? And so I like this, that even if you don't have access to, you don't, you don't need access to data set A, B, or C, you can basically say, depending on how much data I have, can I make sort of a judgment call where this is still not breaking down or this is still working on any given way that you can slice the data? I think that this helps you sort of identify different ways that you can slice the data and validate it. Indeed. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, you say that the crucial words you just said, it depends on the, the, the amount of data you have. Uh, I mean, if you, we are now a little bit now, I mean, I know 2020 in a little different era than we were, but still uh, the majority of medical data sets on which models are developed are small relatively. And, um, and if you don't have enough data, then using that splitting of your data sets sounds so appealing, but the disadvantage is, is that the total, that the data set on which you develop the model also becomes smaller. And I mean, smaller number of records, a number of uh, individuals. Whereas many people still develop models with a huge amount number of columns, which is the predictors or the input variables in the machine learning world. So you have limited number of records, individuals with a huge amount of input variables or predictors. Right? Then, and if you then also split such relatively small data set, yeah, then you are losing power, statistical power, of course, to develop a proper, robust, generalizable model. So I always keep a warning on that. Yes, in principle, that's good. Don't do you random splitting, but rather in time, the older data set for developing and the, the current data set, the most, and the data set most 
close to current time. Um, the temporal validation, that's good in principle. So you know how the model would work right now, closest to your current time. But only, only and only if you have enough data for the development uh, left. And some people do. If you have thousands of records, but still, the majority of data sets where models are developed on, in medicine at least, is very limited, relatively limited, I should say. Yeah, and I guess that's a good segue to the issue of it's not just how much data you have, but the nature yep. of your outcomes. Um, so essentially, you know, you could have, if you have 10,000 patients, but adverse events are rare, and this is the main thing, um, that yep. adverse events by nearly by definition are rare because humans tend to live, um, that uh, essentially you could have a data set. It'll take your example of random random cuts. Um, if only if only 10% of your, oh, let's make it even more realistic. That is already big, 10%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like, and honestly, we're talking about something like COVID. Uh, you're talking about, for example, uh, 1%, half a percent 1%, of your data. Yeah. 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 Um, so say half a percent of your data actually has the outcome of interest, which means yeah. just for people doing the math, 99.5% right. do not have that. You split your data randomly. I bet you yeah, that don't. with high probability, many of your models actually predict that something will never happen because there's literally no examples in the data. Um, the noise so, prediction is huge, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, Glenn, to add something, it's not only the number of events that uh, we're talking about, uh, and, uh, but it's also in relation to the number of input variables or predictors that you're studying. So if it's, if it's only one predictor, but then it's not a model, of course, but if it's only <laughs> two predictors, that helps. But usually people still, and I, and I understand that reflex, I've been there as well. Uh, oh my goodness, I have a data set with 40 variables. Let's see how well they connect to my outcome, not only by uh, one by one, but also in combination. Yeah, you get way overfitted models. So it's not only the number of events, but in relation to the number of predictors, candidate predictors that you are studying for inclusion in your model, yeah. Yeah, and then again, there's even further dimensions on that where, for example, if the nature of an outcome is different. So for example, the clinical nature where you can have, um, you can have a, clinical death, but if it's because they were in a uh, neural ICU versus, um, you know, a uh, wound unit or um, a general ICU where this data, even if it is, you know, even if it's uh, one type of event that in practical clinical terms, and this can apply to non-medical domains as well, where there are subjective differences between these that aren't even captured by the data. And so your data set can come extremely small very quickly. Um, no yeah, matter yeah, whether it's indeed. big and when it's small, it's even smaller than that. Um, if you think that these outcomes are different and have a different kind of underlying uh, association with the predictors, then uh, yeah, your data set becomes uh, much smaller than you thought it was. Uh, on, a, on a practical note, so I guess uh, this is probably something from, uh, I believe, paper two, yes, paper two on developing a prognostic model um, mm -hmm. that uh, we talked about, you know, model selections. We've talked about variables. If you have a frequently the number of predictors you can have uh, vastly outweighs, for example, the number of like events of interest that you might have. Um, and uh, one of the topics discussed was whether or not it's good to, you know, do forward selection. Uh, how do you select a model? It's all an open question. You know, that's one of the nice, it's one of the big adventures in data science and statistics where the selection of a model is not set in stone. Um, yeah. This is cool for- yeah, and also yeah, also my answer does not mean that it's set in stone. Um, uh, first of all is um, 
I think we need simply to realize, and that's all already uh, a big benefit if we understand that process and realize that what the consequences are. I think we all understand that if you have a low number of events and you start out with a huge amount of predictors relatively to the number of events, um, and you whether you apply a, a forward, backward, or anyone else, but particularly here, yeah, the essence is if you use the outcome association with the predictor. So if you use your own data to select those predictors, then you need to realize what I think you, we all feel that deep down in our in a, in a gut feeling you got that if you have simply too many predictors forward or backwards, you will end up with a model that is very much tailored to that specific data set. And you, you, we all have a gut feeling that we know that if we would apply that to any other uh, situation, then uh, you will definitely have an you'll see an overfitted model with much less predictive accuracy as in that original data set. So what we say, if you have many predictors and limited number of uh, events that the, uh, we talked already about that apply a kind of internal resampling process to see how much the optimism is and adjust your model for that optimism using shrinkage or penalization techniques. Uh, if you have, uh, let's say, uh, enough predictors uh, relative to the number of events, and uh, for, let's not get into detail what is enough, uh, that's hard, but very recently, actually last year, I think Riley, Richard Riley et al. and Martin van Smeden, uh, together with myself, uh, wrote a few papers, statistics and medicine on uh, the number of events needed for model development, both for dichotomous outcomes and linear outcomes. Uh, but let's say you have enough uh, events for the number of predictors, then personally I prefer, but I think most people is a, uh, a kind of backwards because with backwards, you at least kick off with all the predictors, all the information you have. And then you then, uh, and then all the correlations between these predictors are immediately uh, included in that model fitting. And then to see whether you could apply model reduction techniques without losing predictive accuracy. And as soon as you see that you will lose a predictor, but uh, that you would kick out a predictor and dropping too much in the predictive accuracy or the explained variation of your outcome, a little technical, then stop and put that variable back in and that's your final model. So I think I, prefer, I would prefer that method rather than the forward selection. And then the third situation, if you have way too limited data and too many predictors, don't use your data set for selecting predictors, not forward, not backward, but simply use uh, your knowledge and experience and, and clinical relevance, or perhaps even, can we measure the predictor anyhow outside a specific clinic? Or can we predict it in the settings we developed the model for, throw them out and then only fit that model with the predictors that you have pre-selected, not using your data, but using common knowledge or the literature? Yeah, I have to say, uh, way number three is what, the one that seems to ring truest for me personally. Um, yeah, where, I understand. Uh, yeah, and it, obviously some of that just comes with experience, um, and also just trusting my gut uh, of yeah. not knowing to. And you know that doesn't uh, that third way doesn't actually mean that you throw the first way or the second way out the window. It just means that that third way means like, for example, here's where I'm going to start my backward selection just very quickly. Um, 
Yeah. For those who aren't as familiar with um, forward and backward selection from a statistical perspective, we're either talking about essentially you would take basically all our features are a very large set of features and we remove them based on whether or not there's been an assessed level statistical significance or some information criterion. Um, and that if they are not sufficiently correlated with the outcome that we have removed them. Um, and I guess, and uh, then going forward selection is essentially saying we start with a, a null model and we try to build. Um, and of course, uh, let's uh, just quickly knock out some of the ideas with this. Um, issue with forward selection, of course, is that it means that you're effectively dependent if a new variable is going to come in. Um, it must at least have some very large univariate relationship with the ultimate outcome. So I think that it puts at risk if you have a variable that's very important, but it depends on correlation, something like a Simpson's paradox scenario, um, that essentially a forward selection is probably apt to ignore that. Um, backward selection is actually a bit interesting to talk about backward selection from a statistical and p-value perspective, especially uh, for prognostic, uh, product, prognostic and predictive models, given that uh, a lot of the field by the time they're doing predictive models have essentially thrown a lot of uh, the basic statistics and p-value type of intuition out. Um, but maybe it'd be good to talk about that at least for a minute or two, um, yeah. that um, if we were developing a predictive model, but instead of, this is what interests me from more of a machine learning perspective. I'm used to when you develop a predictive model, you're generally trying, and I do probabilistic machine learning. So I, there's a statistical element, but the idea that um, for that model, you're not gonna be selecting the variable solely on the prediction metric. You're gonna be doing it due to the actual uh, statistical analysis of whether or not effectively they're correlated. Um, which I, th I think is an interesting thing. It's sort, sort of a two-step process, whereas a lot of other machine learning uh, fields, just they keep it one step and they just tune it to that particular metric. Uh, do, should we talk about that a bit yeah. and its implications? Yeah, okay. And what, what sense, what's, uh, what's your quick question? Uh, yeah. yeah, oh yeah, yeah, uh, the, the, the actual question. Um, so when we are selecting these models uh, based on their the statistical significance of the correlation between the predictor and the outcome. What are the types of problems? And we'll just do backward selection to keep this uh, straightforward. Um, we'll go back to keep it straightforward. Um, uh, we'll, uh, what, what are the types of errors that you start seeing? What are the types of model problems that you see by using a statistical correlation or the second step as opposed to just directly modeling improved predictive accuracy? Yeah, that, that's a good thing. Uh, that, that's also the, the, the difficulty with prediction models. Eh? The, what do you want the prediction models do? That is, that they accurately predict. That means yeah, the, the calibrate, we call that the calibration measure, so that, that the predicted probabilities are equal to the observed outcome frequencies. And you can never do that on the individual level, not so easy because each individual has one or zero. Uh, if you talk about the dichotomous outcome, so you need to do that on group uh, on, on groups. But that's the idea of calibration: is to predict the probability equal to the observed outcome frequency to the real probability. And uh, the other one is how well does it discriminate between people with the outcome versus people without the outcome, without the event. Uh, but the backward and forward, actually any statistical selection process, not anywhere, but many, um, is usually on indeed correlations on statistical parameters or information criteria. Uh, so what we, and that's because the, the are the mo these are usually the most robust ones. 
uh, with the maximum likelihood estimations on the log likelihood. Uh, so that they are very much uh, reliable and it's a very good approach to use. Nevertheless, you always need to test and to check whether the final model with the selected variables, whatever forward or backward, based on that correlation or on the maximum likelihood or any other uh, information criteria, that that final model still is accurately predicting and also discriminating enough and, uh, and ideally on a test data set. And we call it a validation set. Let's, let's call it an independent data set from which you developed it. Eh? That's what you need to do. And now, if that ID is, uh, you know, is sinking down in the, in the methods and in approaches that we do when developing and validating prediction models, whether it's using machine learning or prevailing statistics with backwards or forwards or any other variable selection, then I think we have gained a lot if that process is simply inherited. And that the policies that you have with backward selection or forward selection, because you focus so too much on the, only on the correlation or the statistical correlation, will be then checked, double checked, whether you lost somewhere in the predictive accuracy, in the calibration or in the discrimination. Now that testing on calibration discrimination is not frequently done. What I see, uh, particularly, is, and that's no offense whatsoever, because it, I also see it in the prevailing statistics, is somehow, don't ask me why, but probably because it was pressing buttons in statistical packages, is that the discrimination, the CE index, um, the, the value of discrimination, is quite well and often done and reported. We saw that in prevailing statistics, uh, sorry, in the, in the prevailing statistical literature and prediction modeling, we saw that the C-index is increasingly over the years well displayed and well reported. The calibration is very poorly reported, even in the prediction model papers with prevailing statistics. And I see the same happening now again with the machine learning literature. Somehow the C-index or some measure of discrimination or classification is reported and is done, but they forget to me, and I think to many of us, the most important aspect of a prediction model is the calibration. Is it accurately predicting what you want to predict? And that's not so often reported. So they do a lot of techniques with variable selection and internal validation and testing, but they forget to report or to check whether the model predicts the reality good enough calibration. So if I get that message across with this interview, Every model developer do not focus only on the discrimination, the C-index, but also on whether the model predicts accurately the calibration, then we have gained a lot. Uh, yeah, um, and uh, Heather's for anyone who, who just tuned in or re-woke up in the middle of the conversation. So mm -hmm. uh, what we have is uh, we're distinguishing between the calibration of a model, which must be checked, and the um, discrimination model. Discrimination model being the ability to distinguish between, uh, I guess I would say two feature sets that will have uh, distinct yep. outcomes, or in this case, yep. uh, two patients who are likely to have clinically distinct outcomes. Um, and then the uh, calibration, which I believe is pretty much what it sounds like, which is where is this actually yeah. following along with what our prediction is. Um, and I also view the yep. calibration as related to that topic that we brought up at the beginning, which is when you bring in a new predictive model and you look to see if it's calibrated to new data, 
And that's sort of your metric for whether or not you need to be adjusting a new model. What did, what did I miss? No, you didn't miss. And uh, we kicked off this, uh, this answer about the relation with um, statistical correlation with variable selection eh, forward or backward. And that's just, of course, statistical correlations is related to the calibration of the final model and discrimination of the final model. But it's not a one-to-one -one association, unfortunately. So using the statistical correlations for variable selection with prevailing statistical modeling or machine learning statistical modeling, I understand that it's okay, but do not forget to, to, to also take the next step to see whether that final model, regardless of your selection process, variable predictor selection process, that of that, whether that final model in an independent data set predicts accurately its calibration and also discriminates well enough. If it's fit for purpose, the discrimination well enough in that independent data set. And let's have that rhythm always there. Yeah, cool. yeah actually, um, one uh, t topic that I wouldn't mind circling back around to was on the issue of validating on new data sets. Uh, the idea that um, it's uh, said in the papers that if you have a choice between um, taking a model and applying it to a new data set and recalibrating that model, that it's preferable yeah. to essentially trying to redesign your model from scratch. Um, and I think that this is, this is an interesting idea. I think that there, it is certainly valuable, especially as a model development process, but uh, perhaps instead of just taking that at face value, we should discuss it a bit um, where yep. if, um, so let's say uh, you've developed a model um, at your hospital, you sent it over to me, I have a new set of patients um, and I say, okay, um, I'm testing the predictive accuracy, the, uh, the calibration of my model, model, the discrimination of my model on this new group. Um, it's discriminative. Oh, model, you mean. oh yeah, your model. Yep. Yeah. Your yeah, model. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, uh, and now I see that it is, for example, discriminative, but it is not uh, calibrated. What is the next step? How do, how do we go about this? Yeah, I think this is very frequent. Uh, that's actually almost always the, the situation. You're lucky if it's, uh, if it's just with this, uh, a good enough C index uh, discrimination and, and, uh, and a good calibration. So uh, I have encountered it a lot. And uh, yeah, what I would do is uh, not immediately take in my own data set to start redeveloping uh, my own model from my own data set. Provided, of course, eh, Glenn, that uh, the original data set was also not a very small one, because if it's a very small data set, you know, already it's too optimistic, don't even try uh, validate it, of course. Therefore, we developed Probust, by the way, the Probust tool uh, on www.probust.org. You can find it uh, where you, uh, it's a risk of bias tool to, uh, to, to judge whether your model has uh, a face value, but also is uh, uh, overfitted or not and should be applied for validation processes but provided the data set the development data set my data set eh, because you you are the validating your, my model eh? but if my data set was good enough it eh, was big enough we had a, a good model well conducted uh, we penalize it and you are applying it and you find poorer calibration and your data set is not 10 times bigger than mine, but let's say it's equivalent or perhaps even smaller. Usually validation sets are smaller, not always, but very often we see that. Then please suppress your reflex. You find a poor calibration of my model, the Moon's model. Suppress your reflex to develop the Glenn model, of course. 
Colapier, uh, is your last name. Yeah, so suppress that reflex for a minute. Uh, please, first, not uh, to, to get the moon's model out there in the atmosphere. That's not what I'm meaning here, though, by the way. I just want to get out of the, yeah. out of the you know, way. I was just going to say, uh, very quickly, I only name the model after myself if it's any good. <laughs> so. <laughs> but uh, so don't do that. So suppress that reflex. Don't immediately develop a new model, but rather check whether that what do you see? Because that miscalibration you're talking about is very often simply an intercept change. You can see that on the calibration plot. If it's below or above the diagonal line, you know, it's by definition, it's an, an, an intercept problem. So just adjusting the intercept or the baseline hazard, depending on the type of prediction model you have, you can fit the job, fit that gap, and you make it well calibrated on your system. The only thing you needed, what was the original intercept or baseline hazard? And, uh, and what is it in your data set? And there, there are statistical tricks and formulas how to do that, and you can do the job. Sometimes it's actually a little bit uh, flipped so that the, uh, the calibration slope is not one, because one means perfect calibration, but it's a little less, usually it's less. 0.9 or 0.8, then that means that the original model was too optimistic, overfitted for your when you apply it to your data set. Then usually it's a slope thing. Now slope means it's a regression coefficient or a predictor wave thing. So after some adjustments of the original predictor weights or regression coefficients, you see that you actually can make your model, the moon's model, well calibrated to your data set without developing a new model. So that means that the Moon's Colopy model is now not based only on the Colopy data set, but it's actually based on the original Moon's data set combined, even though you didn't have the data set, but via the, the regression weight and via the intercept, it's now based on two data sets. So it's based on more data than it was already. And if you would have developed your own data set, on your, it would only be based on the Colopy data set. And that I think is an unfortunate, a lot of people do. I did it myself as well in the past. Uh, a lot of people do, but I think it's an unfortunate uh, way of uh, yeah, dealing with scientific evidence or scientific data. If somebody already did quite a good job, don't throw it immediately away and take it for granted and just repeat it in your own data set. Because uh, yeah, it's simply throwing away existing evidence and perhaps indirectly even throwing away existing data. Yeah, and I'd also say the ideal of method, by the way, oh. Len, just one minute. The ideal would be, of course, Carl, give me a call. Carl, I have a similar data set. Can we bring these two data sets together and make them a, a bigger IPD data set? And let's see whether we can fit the supermodel from the two data sets combined or even more data sets. Yeah. And of course, we'll we'll have to uh, we'll have to stop that. We'll have to nip that one in the bud because uh, too many conversations go into hierarchical modeling, and uh, we, we yeah, of course yeah. uh, we can't we can't allow too much uh, hierarchical no. modeling. No. Um, no. But yeah, no. Um, and I was just saying, since we're having uh, discussing on the scientific issue, I think that it might be worth reflecting on sort of there's a good scientific reason to believe, for example, that if a model is miscalibrated, check the intercept first. Um, so, for example, my hypothesis on this has always been that most things correlations seem to go in the same direction unless there's something uh, like fundamentally different about these models, like uh, these are literally two distinct patient sets. So many correlations seem to send, go in the same direction, but sort of the general acuteness of, for example, a patient population might change. Um, so that was always my interpretation of saying 
you can always adjust the, adjust the intercept and look at the intercept first before fiddling too much with the slopes. Good point. We say that too. And uh, that's actually, that's paper three we're talking about now. It's somewhere in paper three, or at least we refer to the more in-depth papers. Um, indeed, uh, we, I'm always inclined. You see that also on the calibration uh, plot. Uh, if you look at the calibration plots, it gives you already the indication. Uh, is it an intercept or a slope thing? And always starts with the intercept adjustment because you fix a lot with that. Uh, we have written, uh, I've been involved in quite a few papers that also showed this, what you said, that fixing the intercept based on hazard head, depending on the type of model, already gives you a lot of, uh, uh, solves a lot of your problems with miscalibration. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I guess uh, one other thing um, that I wanted to cover about the idea of variable model selection is um, obviously because we're going to be having the uh, Zauerbrei and Royson conversation yeah, a little bit later. Um, they, uh, you cover fractional polynomial models in this, um, which I think are interesting both from a biological and just sort of practical scientific perspective. I think that yep. they are very good alternatives to essentially imputing linear forms on models or uh, worse yet, uh, step functions of some sort, implicit step functions or dichotomization on uh, a lot of these models because I don't think those reflect most biological reality. Um, but... Uh, I also saw uh, on this, uh, I think that the fractional polynomial discussion, regardless of whether you're going to use, for example, fractional polynomials or maybe a Gaussian process method, um, that there's this desire to move away from really hard-coded functional uh, specifications of your predictive models. Um, similar things with splines, where effectively splines are nice ways to sort of smooth through the data, but you shouldn't be interpreting every little wiggle in a spline fit because obviously some of those are just functions of the data. Um, so where I want to go with this next you put is... Knots on that, eh? yeah. Therefore you put knots on these splines and the number of knots that you allow a particular spline. Yeah. But yeah. this is a good topic. Uh, I mean, we'd love to talk about that, but this is a good topic indeed for Patrick and Willie uh, yeah. to cover that with them. Uh, yeah. yeah, but I guess maybe just to discuss it a, a bit more broadly that one of the big issues here is that... Um, uh, predictive models tend to fail if the functional form that you're giving them, and by functional form, I just mean yeah. if you're calling it a linear model or calling it a quadratic model, it really better be a quadratic model because uh, in the tails, yeah. for example, things yeah. go, yeah. polynomials are nicely sort of behaved where you have your data sometimes. Um, but of course, in the tails of any polynomial model, they do extreme things as polynomials want to do, yeah. as we learned in high school. I think, um, yeah. I think, therefore, uh, uh, people that prefer the, the spline uh, approach uh, like to go for the splines because they behave better in the tails. Eh? I think that's the, the reasoning behind that uh, for not moving to fractional polynomials, FPs, but rather to the, the RCS, the restricted cubic splines. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd also just say yeah. for anyone, because I go on. Yeah, I just wanted to say a good point. And eh? we're uh, flipping back to paper two, eh? where you talk about development, and it, it's not simply including the predictors into your model. That's actually the essence that you're saying, but that the functional form of the predictor with the outcome, and ideally not in the univariable space, eh, that predictor with that outcome, but in the multivariable space. So that means eh, a backward selection approach, by the way, because otherwise you couldn't do that. So the functional form in the multivariable space with the outcome of the predictors eh, with the outcome, and that's extremely important because way too often, 
way too often is that uh, there are prediction models developed and they didn't even check this and then they probably have missed important predictors or uh, included predictors that could be much better uh, in their predictive sense than uh, the way they included them that's usually simply as a linear term and uh, that's a fallacy that way too many people uh, indeed make and it's a good point i haven't checked it yet how often this is covered well enough in the machine learning world or in the ai world uh, i'm not sure do you know that do they is this an is a, a feature characteristic that's you know, on top of their brains that they always check that these functional forms yeah i would say uh yeah i mean uh for people who sort of follow the maxim that um your model should always be describing the data generation process. Um, so when you take that as your first step, then you say, well, is the data generation process linear or polynomial? And the answer is, of course, it's none of those. It's never, there's, there's nothing on earth that really operates except, I don't know, planetary motion on some way, according to these like very distinct uh, finite degree polynomial functions. And so I know, for example, a lot of the uh, Gaussian process work, for example, one of its main benefits is that it doesn't impute an explicit functional form. It's, it's implicit from the data itself. Um, and so it basically, one of the things it is, you will have feature selection is in the covariance structure. But what that saves you from is having to do this polynomial feature selection and sort of this feature wrangling. Um, so it's sort of like you, you trade one for the other. And then, um, so I think that number of degrees, uh, for example, of your polynomial um, is an issue. And actually, even in practical terms, uh, for anyone who's thinking, oh, well, uh, these sort of polynomial models are just you know, they're old, no one uses them anymore. Not actually true. I, I actually had an application recently where my data set was quite small. I only needed basically slopes and like directionality. And I, I had to go back all the way to just basic polynomials, doing some fits and some checks. And, you know, the basic issues with polynomials, whether they behave in the uh, tails and things like that is very important. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah no, it yeah. is, it is um, I think a lot of uh, machine learning work when you're trying to uh, abstract with uh, some of the issues with feature selection, one of the easiest things you can do is try to not be imputing these hard forms. Um, and learn yeah, to be a little yeah. bit the, the non-parametric Bayesian non-parametric world. I'd say is, yeah, is. Yeah, pretty well yeah. uh, suffused with these types of things. So I hope okay. that answers yeah. the question. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. Yeah. Since obviously this is the uh, we're talking about the scientific aspects of data science and statistics, and uh, science is a largely inductive process. Um, I thought it might be good just to explain why these issues are not just applicable to medical science, but general data science. Um, we cover the issue of applying your data set to, or your model to new data sets. And uh, one thing I think we could just discuss briefly is why does a model's uh, performance change from one to the other? You know, we have ideas like, um, you know, that the model fit is different on um, the parameter selection, but uh, there's also just more fundamental differences in data sets. For example, they're derived from different processes. Um, maybe it'd be good just to end on that discussion um, where we just talk about why it's important to use judgment and really understand your data generating process when figuring out how to move your model forward. Yeah, that's a good point. Eh? It, has, it has to do with the um, with what you talked about before. Is somebody developed a model and then you apply it or test it in your data set, validate it in your, data, in, a, in your own data set, in a different data set, and then you see different 
calibration or different discrimination and we've talked about updating intercept and regression coefficients and now you're asking me what are the more generic causes that could deal with that process now first of all for starters is um, it doesn't matter what the exact cause is you see that it miscalibrates suddenly and or and misdiscriminates or lower discriminates so you have to deal with that uh, now what could be causes and that helps to understand the data generation process and now, first of all, it could be uh, simply that the, uh, the incidence, and we talk about prognosis, so it's incidence. If we talk about diagnosis, it's prevalence, of course, but that the, uh, the frequency of the outcome is simply different. And uh, I have encountered it a lot with cardiovascular prediction models developed in the, in the 80s or 90s, and then I apply it in my current time, and then I see uh, much less events, and that's because that care has improved more preventive management, a better lifestyle, better treatments, whatever. Um, so that's a reason why you have lower outcome frequencies. So that's a cause. And you only under, you see only in your data the lower incidence. But understanding that is important. So you need to understand where your data set come from and also which time period. Uh, another of uh, what is, is simply the case mix variation is that it's simply as similar but different population than the original one. So you have different case mix uh, variables, which means that, uh, and if these case mix variables are included as predictors in the model, then it might be covered. But if it's a case mix variance with predictors that are not in the model, but are important, yeah, that means that they were missed in the development and play a role in the validation set. Um, uh, that the associations between the predictors have changed over time. So it's not only the overall incidence, but it could also be that the associations have differed or that the predictors are measured differently. For example, that they used uh, blood pressure measurement with auscultation, with the hearing, the conventional method, and then the new data set is with automatic measurements. It's a simple example, but uh, the, the, the way predictors are measured is important. The way the outcome is measured uh, is important. It could be different, not with overall debt. That is debt. It's in every country the same. That is debt. Wait two minutes and you know that something well, four minutes and that is debt. But if it's an outcome that requires some kind of subjective interpretation to determine outcome pressing, yes or no, that could be in the development data set. Others are different than in the validation data set. Different in measurement error, so to say. So that all our causes that are the reasons why the model behaves poorly in your data set. Yeah, and indeed, it's a good point. Uh, let's stress this. Therefore, using the human brain, understanding the process of the data generation and the time period where the development data came from and your data set comes from, yeah, that is almost a, a necessity, a requirement to, to interpret the, the model in your data, in your setting. And that's, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought this up because I forgot this. Is we stress this very much in our series, but it's usually forgotten by a lot of prediction models. They simply have a data set. They don't even ask where the data set comes from. And simply analyzing and finding associations and coming up with a model and validate that model or test that model. But that, that's, that's usually not enough. It can bring you into problems, particularly if you want to generalize that model to other settings. And you need the understanding of the data generation process. And I didn't speak about missing data even, and how they dealt with missing data. 
Ah. That's, not, that's my middle name, Carl Missing Moons, because I, that's my hobby, dealing with missing data, but let's not discuss that. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll put that in a box for another time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have that, a series uh, as well, eh, by the way, in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. That's something else. Cool. Sweet. Well, uh, I hope everyone has enjoyed this. I've certainly enjoyed this conversation. Um, for those who did not read the series in advance, um, the series along with the tripod uh, links will be in the video description below. Um, so yep. definitely look, uh, read it. I think it's extremely helpful for early career data scientists. It doesn't matter if you're in medical statistics or uh, in finance or in uh, I don't know, supply chain modeling. These, the process that they describe is easily understood. Um, they use models that you can easily understand so you can stick with the concepts. And it's a very good checklist to start understanding how you should be sorting out your work and deciding how to develop the entire process of predict a model because it isn't just fitting and you're done. There's a huge process before it, there's a process after it. And I think that this is probably one of the two best uh, descriptions that we're gonna have on that issue. So um, the other one being the NIPS paper, I think that I might've mentioned at the beginning. But uh, Carl, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And uh, no, I'm glad also, that's a good ending, eh? That, eh? that if you have done all your research, you need to report it transparently because without transparent reporting, others can never use your model and will not use your model. So you can be angry, but you should only be angry at yourself because transparent reporting is the essence of using model the model by others and that's where we developed uh, tripods so uh, it's good to enter tripods and that tripod comes in the whole process at the end people think at least because that's what you need to report but personally i use the tripod checklist already at the beginning because if i know what is demanded to report then i need to make sure that i also get that information out there during my research so the tripod checklist is also very helpful for everyone who is in the mod prediction modeling world to use that upfront as well. So as the ProBus checklist, it's a risk of bias checklist of pr prediction models, it's very useful to use that upfront. And it doesn't matter whether you're predicting the uh, medical outcomes or non-medical outcomes, it doesn't matter whether you use prevailing statistics or machine learning or artificial intelligence uh, methods. It doesn't matter whether you're predicting in cardiovascular cancer or orthopedics. It doesn't matter whether you use genetic predictors or non-genetic predictors. It actually, it's quite generically written. Of course, it has subtleties in the different domains, but it's largely applicable to all of these different domains. Uh, yeah. Because... Yeah, because it's about scientific rigor, I'd say. Indeed. Um, yeah. Indeed. And that's why we use science on many things as opposed to just one or two things. Good point. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Carl. Thank you, too. Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks so much for listening to this most recent episode of the Philosophy of Data Science. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider leaving a like, a comment, and hitting that subscribe and bell button, or small channel in every bit helps. If you have a lab, a department, some students or some colleagues who you think would enjoy this episode, please consider sending it along. Again, every bit helps, and we really appreciate your word of mouth. Our next episode on the philosophy of data science will be coming out 1 p.m. Eastern time, Wednesday of next week, so we look forward to seeing you then. But if you can't wait to get more data science, machine learning, and statistical content, feel free to look around the rest of the channel. We have a large number of playlists, including things like 
machine learning for healthcare, uh, ethics and AI, and things like that. So give a look around. There's plenty more content for you to enjoy. You can also check out our website to not only see past episodes, but what's coming up and see who our sponsors are. Thank you to our sponsors for your support. Now, while the views discussed on the show typically range between extraordinary and mind-blowing, the stated views don't necessarily represent those of the host, our sponsors, my employer, your employer, the speaker's employer, or anyone else not saying those words. And as always, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. See you next week.